five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast, where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. I'm Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist. But I am an alumnus of the International Space University, which is also our partner in the podcast. Here's a short message from them. The International Space University, founded in 1987 in Massachusetts, USA, and now headquartered in Strasbourg, France, is the world's premier international space education institution. It is supported by major space agencies and aerospace organizations, ISU offers the Master of Science in Space Studies program at its central campus in Strasbourg. ISU also conducts the highly acclaimed two-month Space Studies program at different host institutions in locations spanning the globe. And more recently implemented the Executive Space Course, the Southern Hemisphere Space Studies program and Commercial Space program. ISU programs are delivered by over 100 ISU faculty members in concert with invited industry and agency experts from institutions around the world. Since its founding 33 years ago, more than 4,800 students and participants from over 100 countries graduated from ISU. Follow us on social media at ISUNet. On this episode, we will hear from another space startup from Switzerland. Wegor analyzes satellite data to understand snow cover. You may be forgiven now if you think, like I did, that this is mostly about skiing. There's actually much more to this business. Wegor's co-founder and CEO, Jon Padilla, will walk us through it. Enjoy. So hi, we got uh, Jon here from Wegor. Jon, how you done? Welcome Hello, to the podcast. I'm good, you? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Excellent. Where are you uh, joining us from today? I'm currently joining from south of Spain. I'm, uh, I'm in Malaga at the moment. Excellent, excellent. Um, we are, we're doing this remotely today. I'm in my office in um, central Florida, um, probably a place where we will never use your product unless we have severe climate issues. But um, <laughs> <laughs> probably in Malaga, the coast uh, never. But Jan, uh, speaking, of your, speaking of your product, why don't you give us the, the elevator pitch on what your company is about? Sure. Uh, yeah, so at WeGo, we focused on uh, a near real-time um, space data processing. Um, and, uh, and our first product is focused on snow monitoring. So basically, uh, using satellite imagery, weather, and ground data, we process it using machine learning and remote sensing in order to monitor uh, snow worldwide. Uh, the, the main appliances for these um, snow and snow melt uh, sort of data are for uh, the uh, hydropower and utility sector. So basically by monitoring snow melts will help uh, these companies into uh, better forecasting the inflow in their in the reservoirs and therefore the production of electricity. In Understood. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about um, all your different customers in, in detail, but I have to ask, um, how did you guys come up with snow? I mean, I know you you guys are based in Switzerland. Was it as simple as like, you know, you didn't trust the, the skiing forecast or what is the origin story there? Well, it was pretty much looking out the window, right? <laughs> no, actually. <laughs> not, not, not this year. <laughs> <laughs> not this year, no. Um, so actually, it's, I think it's one of these classic uh, startup stories, right? We are one of the few um, uh, startups in the space industry that is not coming directly from um, the space industry. Uh, both co-founders, we were not in the space industry before. So this is straight coming from, from a problem we encountered, which was uh, that uh, it was primarily for tourism in the beginning, which was that when you're going out there uh, as a hiker or skier, it was really difficult to grasp um, uh, really high quality snow data. Uh, you will have some, you know, precipitation, etc. But in the end, if you wanted to understand if there was snow at, at specific location or not, if you had to uh, wear specific equipment, 
you couldn't. That information was not uh, available whatsoever. And and then we started digging a little bit in that in that problem, and we realized that uh, that was extended for uh, several industries. Like for example, hydropower, they had really big problems into forecasting snow melt, what is called the snow water equivalent. And um, and you know likewise for water utilities like we're talking before about um, uh, California for example these guys in order to understand how much water they could expect in, in spring they need to climb up to uh, to Sierra Nevada and, and measure the snow with um, you know with some really manual uh, uh, field surveys so in in a nutshell. Snow, in the end, is a really important uh, resource that converts into water. And in, in specific locations that are close to mountain ranges, it represents, you know, up to 80% of the irrigation for agriculture or the base for uh, for electricity, for example, in hydropower. Um, so that's a little bit where where all these um, sort of visions started start building. And we realized that in order to get high-quality snow data, we had to look at, at space. Yeah, so because um, I guess the way snow is currently measured, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is probably in a really manual way. Is somebody's going out there or how, how does it actually work? Exactly. So the, the, there are two main problems uh, to how we measure snow today. The first one will be the actual way of getting that snow data, which is really manual. You see there through field surveys. So that means um, sending a team up to the mountains in order to understand how much snow there is in a particular location or through uh, with using a specific hardware. And the other problem is that uh, all this data is used um, every now and then. Some, some energy companies, they calculate it um, every season or every twice per season. And then what they do is that they run uh, what is called a snow melt model. And, and that's how they eventually get the predictions of how much snow water equivalent or how much water is going to be flowing down their uh, reservoir. So that means that is one, the data is quite scarce. And second, uh, the data is, is models. Uh, so usually energy companies, they don't have observable data. They work with uh, model data. So that's let's say, the combination of, of where this problem is coming from. Understood. But, I mean, I myself live part-time in, in Switzerland, as you know, and, of course, um, when, we, when we live in Switzerland, we, we do go skiing a lot, usually. Um, when you go to the skiing resort um, websites, and there's obviously also some general websites on snow reports, I mean, it looks like they have some sort of data which is on a more frequent basis. But is that still the case that basically they have some sensors or somebody manually measuring it, or how does how does that work? Yeah, for for um, for the ski industry is uh, a little bit different. So there are some ski stations that are really really sophisticated, and they have some sensors um, that they put in specific locations. Obviously, an area of a ski resort is much easier to measure than a complete catchment area. That could be, you know. Uh, hundreds of, of uh, square kilometers. And uh, so on one end, they, some of them, they have these sophisticated hardware, uh, which is not usually uh, the case. What, what usually you will counter is um, a meteorological forecast. So basically they tell you, hey, yesterday we had, uh, I don't know, 1.5 meters of snow that fall. Um, I, mean, we, I mean, usually you have like 30 centimeters or 40 centimeters of snow that fall. But it's really difficult for them to actually tell you how much of that snow that fall uh, melted or, uh, you know, how dense is that, that snow that fall. This is coming from a, from a weather forecast. So actually, even if there were 30 centimeters of snow that, uh, that fall in, in the form of precipitation, you cannot really know when you go up there how much of that snow is still there. Uh, and if, if the, the, how dense it is and therefore how much uh, water equivalent you will have in the end. So this, this brings up a good point because, um, again, as a skier uh, and, and, and also as a hiker in mountains, I know that snow doesn't equal snow, right? I mean, there's, there's different types of snow and there's this, this old cliche that the, um, the, the Inuit, the Eskimo people, they have like many different words for snow. And I guess we have that a little bit even in English, right? You can talk about powder, you can talk about slush. Um, yeah that kind of thing. Is that something you guys capture as well? Um, and how is that 
useful if so indeed so um we have obviously we have different products inside of our of, of our main umbrella snow monitoring product um so the most basic one that we we are offering to our customers will be the snow cover extent which is basically that in our customers where there is snow or where there is not snow with a really high precision uh, currently, uh, you know, with the uh, with the sensors available, with the satellites that we have launched, um, this is relatively easy to to guess. And then we can get uh, more sophisticated uh, with uh, with, for example, radar technology. We can get into analyzing uh, the wetness of the snow, right? So um, uh, radar technology is relatively easier to detect uh, wet snow because of the reflectance of the of the wet snow. And um, and then the further that we start digging into the technology, we can uh, get information around uh, snow depth and finally around uh, snow water equivalent. As far as you go to snow water equivalent, then you will you will start uh, inferring uh, more and more and modeling more, uh, depending on the case, obviously. But but yeah, ideally, what we're uh, what we're offering is uh, apart from the snow cover extent and snow depth, uh, the possibility to analyze the snow, uh, the wet snow. Understood. And then talk a little bit about your your main customer groups. I mean, you've you've mentioned the hydropower, and that sounds very interesting. It's probably not something that you know um, a lot of people have thought about. Um, but what what other groups are there, and which ones are the most important ones for you? So uh, when we're talking about customer segments, uh, we are focused on uh, these, uh, let's say, energy or hydropower um, uh, companies, which are primarily two, right? Is the classic hydropower, um, you know, energy creation from dams, uh, which they need to have, and they need to have under control. The core of their business is the, the prospection of how much water is going to go through their turbine. Right. So that's where everything is uh, sort of orbiting. Uh, how much of that water can be uh, converted into energy? How much of that water will need to be spilled? And that's, that's the core business, right? That's all the revenues coming from, from those decisions. And on the other side, we have uh, utilities, which are either uh, energy distributors or water distributors, uh, which they operate in a similar way. Uh, in, 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 instead of having a, a dam, you will have a reservoir that you're using then to treat the water and, and then effectively distributing it. So those will be, let's say, our main focused um, markets. Then we have obviously adjacent markets. This product is cross-industry and it can really affect uh, in many, many different industries. Uh, we have some customers in, in tourism. Um, so obviously, as you, as you might expect it, Ski stations, um, outdoors and ski platforms are, or, or uh, digital products are interested in serving this information to their customers. And um, then we can get even more, uh, more sophisticated, for example, for insurance product that they have uh, snow exposures, like, uh, for example, winter kill uh, crop insurances. So that means uh, some crops they have, they, are, uh, they have some risk when snow falls that they could be potentially lost you know if you have x amount of snow uh, in a wheat crop and the temperature is lower than x at some point that crop will will die right so that is uh, one of the uh, uh, let's say insurance uh, protection that that they have to they have to work uh, likewise for 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 uh, in the financial sector for trading um, when when they need to hedge or or trade with uh, in, in in the energy market, they could take potentially into account uh, the hydropower creation, for example, in countries like Scandinavia, like ninety percent of the uh, of the energy is coming from hydropower. Understood. And when you approach some of these customers, particularly, I suppose the the B two B one, and it sounds like you're very much focused on the B two B for for the moment. Is that sort of a, a very much a bespoke consulting type approach that you kind of engage in depth with the customer and see what they need and then build a product around it? Or is it sort of more on the platform end of things that you have sort of pre-designed um, uh, pre-designed solutions that you're, you're selling to those customers? 
Yeah, so that this is a really good question uh, because this is something that we have been reflecting a lot in terms of how uh, the scalability of the company will work depending on where you uh, where you sit in that value chain, right? Um, so the closer you get to the inflow prediction for the uh, for the energy company or the utilities company, the more uh, let's say bespoke you need to be, right? The more um, unique the product has to be for each client because uh, different orographies, different regions, different dams, everything will uh, affect the final uh, prediction of uh, energy capacity of a specific hydropower uh, plant, right? Um, so on our case, uh, what we do is that we, what we stay is in becoming uh, the leaders in these non-monitoring sector. So that means uh, that we can exactly tell uh, the energy companies, how much snow there is and how much of that snow will eventually convert into water. And then they will uh, take care of uh, taking that information and uh, let's say predicting how much of that snow uh, will eventually come into their, in, as, as inflow of water in, into their turbines. So that means that our product is, it's uh, really scalable because we don't have to modify or it's not so much consulting where we're engaging a, a company, right? It's, we have the data uh, that is produced in this way. Uh, we can directly create an integration to your current uh, hydrology model. You ingest the data and since the data is more accurate than the one that you have currently, uh, that converts into better decision-making and effectively into more revenue for the company. Um, so that uh, helps us and gives us the ability to be much more scalable, uh, you know, cross-country um, cross and, uh, and cross-industries. Uh, and this, I assume, you, do you have some um, initial customers that you're already working with, some Swiss utilities maybe? Yeah, the problem is that all of them, they're really protective, so all of them, they are... Uh, uh, forcing us to to sign NDA, so we cannot really talk about them. But yeah, sure. we're we're working primarily with uh, two energy companies. Understood. And what's your what's your sales process like? Um, is that so? That's a typical, pretty much a typical B two B sales process that you have somebody who's dedicated um, uh, to this type of uh, sales, going out and approaching the utilities. And then when you had your initial discussions, um, because I suppose this is a very new way of doing things for a you know probably relatively conservative typical utility company. Was that something that they immediately <laughs> is that is that something they immediately un understood, or did you think like who are these crazy like uh, space guys um, and what what do they want here? Well, that's a look. That's a really uh, interesting interesting thought because they are indeed conservative, but. They do as well have the same pressure that any business will have, right? So we're primarily talking to the trading and planning groups when we're engaging with an energy company. And, you know, I have been talking to the head of trading and he's telling me, look, I have a lot of pressure from, uh, from upper layers telling me that we need to create more revenues. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing is that when we show up and we say, hey, uh, look, we don't need to be operational tomorrow. But uh, look, if we can put together a POC in a couple of months and demonstrate that we can get, uh, you know, a small, even if a, a small, uh, let's say, error um, reduction in your inflow, in your inflow prediction, in the amount of water that you expect in your turbines, uh, this is definitely a major thing to bring to your to your management, right? Because that's how you are going to be able to predict better and infer better what is going to be your, your moves if you're in trading or in hedging uh, when you will need to turbine that water in order to gain as much money out of, out of your energy depending on how the market is looking like. Right? So that gives them a lot of leverage uh, for internally as well. So that's how we position. So even um, my, my sort of conclusion will be that even if you're talking to a really conservative company, if you have a product that is directly... Uh, hitting the bullseye in their revenue making, they need to listen to you. They are going to sit down with you. And is there a way, I know it's early days for you guys, but is there a way with the customers that you're already working with to quantify this benefit? Sort of like how much in additional revenues or, or trading profits they've been able 
to make and then also kind of contrast that with you know the um the, the price of the product i suppose yeah so this is exactly what we're talking about this with one of the customers because uh, even though if you're moving into a proof of concept with them and you are um, already showing good traction and improving the numbers what everybody wants to know is okay so how much money am i making because of using your product that's that's sort of the gold question right it really depends on the energy companies and how to uh, the hydro uh, hydrology companies and how they um, sort of operate. So, for example, with one of them that we're working, they have a neural network that they have trained with the data in order to do the decision making. So, the neural network is going to tell them, "Hey, you need to uh, remove from the reservoir. I don't know how many uh, liters of water." now because in two weeks uh, there's going to be a lot of water coming and it's better that you turbine and make energy in two weeks that the electricity uh, price is going to be uh, higher than you turbine now and then you make uh, room for more water to come in two weeks. Um, so as you can see it's a really specific uh, decision making about opening the gates to let the water flow or when you, you are going to uh, generate the electricity and how you're going to distribute it in order to make profit. And um, so for us to sort of quantify what is going to be the economic impact, the only way is to do a proof of concept, run the proof of concept, and then compare the decision making uh, one with the other without the snow data and with the snow data and see how those decisions affected in the long run. Um, so as you can see, it's quite complex. There are, there are ways of making it extremely simple, which would be how much uh, water you uh, saved. Uh, you didn't have to spill it because of the um, snow um, sort of monitoring, but that will be like a small quantification of the whole of the whole value that we are giving them. So yeah, it's, it's pretty com uh, it's pretty complex. We have some obviously we have some models that we do internally, and we go with. Uh, uh, lots of research that we have done on the field, but uh, yeah, each energy company for this uh, would be different. Understood. Is there like some sort of, you know, back of the envelope calculation you can make sort of like, let's say you look at one of the utilities you're working with, um, like is your goal to sort of, I'm just trying to understand how ambitious this is. Is your goal to sort of like, well, if everything works perfectly, we think we can, you know, increase their revenues by, you know, 2% or is it like 20% or is it somewhere in between? I know this is a hard question. Yeah, so this is indeed a hard question. So let me answer it the, the most uh, pragmatic way. So what we tell them, uh, basically these energy companies, usually they have between 10 and 20% um, error in their run of calculations, which is the calculation of how much water is going to be melting from snow, which is the primary... Uh, let's say, error in uh, melting season, which is basically when the problems come, when you have a lot of water coming through the, through the mountains. And, um, and basically, uh, with our uh, initial estimations, we are helping them into improving that, uh, that error between 10 and 15%. Now, if you take those numbers and you say, okay, so we defrost, we're going to correct the error, let's say 15% uh, from our current inflow predictions, but how that will convert into actual uh, additional revenue for the energy company, that depends on, on what uh, amount of decisions are going to be taken by that, by that energy company by uh, having a less error in their um, energy forecasting predictions. Um, so that's why it's, it's quite difficult and it varies quite dramatically between one, uh, one energy company to another one. Um, so yeah, that, those are the, the calculations. Understood. Um, let's maybe look at it another way. Is, are those companies currently getting, let's say, this kind of data or even similar data from any sort of alternative, maybe even with manual sources? And if so, do you have any idea how much they're paying for that currently? Um, yeah, so basically, let's put it this way. You can get access to that data currently 
uh, with, uh, let's say, either manual or, or tools that have been used uh, till now. Um, to be very honest with you, energy companies uh, are starting to look at space data now. That, that's why it's, it's relevant, uh, obviously, obviously now, and how space data can adjust their current model. So in a nutshell, what we're, what we're basically doing is helping them with space data to adjust and reduce the error in their models. That's exactly what, we, what we're doing. So in terms of the amount of uh, you know the amount of money that these companies are spending per year in modeling, it, it ranges you know between the tens to the hundreds of thousands, depending on the on the size of the company uh, to gather this data. Okay, yeah. understood. Because as as you probably imagine, my last couple of questions were basically getting a try and um, trying to estimate some sort of market size. How are you guys thinking about that? And then, so how big do you guys think your market can can be? And I, that's obviously the, the the market we're talking about right now with the energy companies, but then also um, other potential customer groups. Sure. Um, so yes, to then we can talk about how we have modeled the go to market at at WeGo. Um, so basically, if we're looking at our target market, which is um, hydro hydrology in particular, right? Which is um, yeah. hydropower and, and utilities. So it's it's a market of around uh, six hundred million, more or less, in terms of uh, you know if if you take into account the amount of um, dams that are in snow prone location, uh, the uh, the amount of uh, budget that is spent into this kind of stuff, which was what I was telling you, that roughly is around you know, 100 to half a million more or less into planning and to uh, gathering all this information to create the, the planning uh, the planning service. And, uh, and the amount of energy companies that are around there, which for our calculations are around 500 um, energy companies. And uh, they have a total of uh, more or less 15,000 power plants that are currently running. These numbers are obviously uh, growing by the day because hydropower is, is quite uh, quite a sexy product at the moment uh, because of obviously climate change sure. and, uh, and the green tech ecosystem. So, you know, from, from our modeling, taking into account the numbers that I have just uh, told you in terms of the inflow predictions that we have helped, and that we are helping them, our calculations is that we would, on average, help them into improving the inflow uh, projections, and therefore uh, on around you know three hundred thousand to half a million euros uh, re additional revenues per power plant. So a company that has you know ten twenty power plants that will be quite a significant uh, additional revenues that we would they will be creating with uh, with our our product. Those numbers are are global numbers. Yeah, so this is this is obviously based in in how we have uh, structured the modeling of our go to market. Um, this obviously changed a lot. If we're talking about a Norwegian hydrology company, or we're talking about um, a Californian, you know, utility company, some of them they might have a lot of impact impact from snow. Some other the the, the impact of the snow will be reduced. Um, each energy company is different. For example, we have an energy company that we're working with in the Alps that um, is quite high. And therefore, the when the product is really useful is in melting season. It's um, usually when it starts snowing and when uh, the melting season starts. And, um, you know, we have another company that uh, is uh, in a southern region. And therefore, the when it starts snowing in October, November, then it could be that uh, you get completely melted in in December because you had a bad season, and then it starts snowing again, and then starts melting in, in in February because it was too hot. So you have a lot of uh, ups and downs, and and the product there adds a lot of value. Um, so it really it really depends in in the different um, dams, the, how you structure the reservoirs, the, the the portfolio of the energy company. But obviously, what, what I'm giving you is uh, really rough numbers that we use for for modeling. The, the go to market understood so what what I'm hearing is here is that maybe sort of a large um, utility customer given the amount of money they might um, um, have in additional revenues 
for a customized solution they might of the, of the data they might be paying you something like i don't know fifty thousand a hundred thousand um a year is that about right yeah the tickets usually uh usually ranges around that yeah from 50k to 300k depending on the amount of uh, uh dumps that they have Understood. it might be i mean some energy companies are really 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 big and sometimes they have groups and uh could be that you know a ticket can go higher but on average let, let's put it that way is around there okay understood and then um c- coming back to my personal passion um of skiing is there any sort of other plans at any <laughs> point in time for like a like a b2c product like you know something we can download on on the app store that's giving us much better snow data that we can currently get yeah so you're you're coming to the core of of our question uh, of our mission um, so this company started as a B2C company, um, like I'm assuming 80% of the startups, right? So young and fresh, and we thought that this could be a really nice uh, opportunity to do a B2C sort of um, uh, platform in which people will uh, see the snow, etc. The problem is that when you are talking about a high tech company, um, and uh, and you need to on one end create a really complex um, you know space related or um, you know I, I wouldn't say that like a really high tech product that requires like a lot of uh, brains to work together and at the same time you need to build a community that is sort of engaging with the product that is sharing and uh, you know commenting liking etc. Your product is a real is such a different skill set that uh, it becomes really really difficult for a low resource um, startup. So that was one of the hard lessons that we had to take in the beginning, and say if if you are aiming to build a really really high tech product, you need to you need you need to go for uh, for B two B almost hundred percent. There are a few exceptions, of course, um, around there that they have built a high tech product that can have a B two C sort of. Um, focus but for us uh, it just didn't work understood so it sounds like you had to pivot away as many startups do for sort of like you know short-term uh, economic considerations but is it, is it still part of your medium-term roadmap um no we're not to be to be frank we're not considering b2 b2c uh is out of our of our um models and uh uh, and you know, it's not even in, in the inside our plan, our really long-term plans. Um, we see that the opportunity is is is, is quite big as as it is, uh, because that will will require that we'll need to you know sort of build up a really strong uh, marketing and communication department with all the you know um, all the rings and bells in order to to make uh, to make that sort of B two C vision work. Um, because you know we know some we know some people that uh, they created a really really high engineer product you you basically put it out there you go to product hunt and you say hey we have this product uh, check it out um then you can have a big pool in the beginning but then you need to have the community around it in order to to grow it or you need to have a massive capital in order to to grow the numbers of that b2c vision so it's it's quite complex yeah and understood i'm i'm clearly disappointed at as a skier and a hiker, but I've seen that. I, I see, <laughs> I see where you're coming from. Let's um, let's change tack a little bit and 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 talk about you know where you're getting your data from. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong correctly. So you guys are not vertically integrated. I think you guys are basically buying um, existing data of of, of other people's satellites. Um, is, is that correct? And if so, like you know, whose data are you using? And um, you know, how is that process? Um, are there any challenges in that process of, you know, getting and uh, processing that data? Yeah, sure. So um, as, as I said in the beginning, we're focusing in near real time. So that means making our data as, uh, you know, available as, as quickly as possible. So in order to do that, what we do is that we ingest as many uh, available satellites as, as possible. Uh, so currently we're using Sentinel and uh, Sentinel constellation, and then uh, NASA NASA satellites. Uh, we're combined currently. We're using uh, you know seven satellites 
in our in our in our products so basically it's a combination of uh, different resolutions of different um, sensors and technology in order to have the final the final product uh, obviously uh, that's the main um, the, the main data but then we combine that with uh, what we call uh, ground truth uh, in order to calibrate our algorithms uh, we have um, certain through one of our partners we have ground stations and uh, high resolution cameras that we use to to validate the product and then we use ancillary data like uh, uh, like you know weather models temperature um, solar radiation etc yeah because i was going to ask um and, and and by background i'm a machine learning guy as well i suppose i was going to ask how you train those models and then i assume um it must be the way you just described that um uh, when, when when you train the machine, the algorithm to detect that really this this white patch is snow, um, you have to give it labeled data that's coming from somewhere else, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that really depends. In uh, so obviously we're not using machine learning for the whole thing is uh, for a specific reason. So for example, we can talk about uh, the cloud occlusion problem. Um, so when we're talking about optical optical data, you have the main problem is when you have cloud, you see nothing. Um, so there are a few where using machine learning techniques uh, that is using basically historical data and um, and you know a certain confidence rate that we assign to each pixel depending on uh, on our machine learning algorithm that basically will remove uh, the clouds from from the picture. So there are specific uh, tools and methodologies that we use in the pre-processing of all the data in order to remove, uh, well, in this case, it could be remove shadows or remove clouds where machine learning uh, comes really handy. Understood. And then you mentioned a resolution of the data. And so I just want to follow up on that. Can you give us some you know, uh, basic data points of like... Um, both spatial resolution, so like you know, what's uh, how, how small a snow patch can you detect, and then also what's uh, um, the, the temporal resolution. And for for the listeners who are not familiar with the term, that basically means how often are you able to look at the, the same spot? Sure. So um, in terms of resolution, we give um, daily data with twenty meter resolution. That's uh, that's our flagship product. Then obviously we can adjust uh, because sometimes we have some customers that uh, you know uh, they are looking at, at a different sort of um, snow product that is not as reliable or or as precise. So we have as well a 375 meter resolution product that is obviously cheaper uh, for them. So it adjusts really well for for um, different markets. So that gives us the, the flexibility. Uh, but again, that's really depending on the on the client. If they want to go down to one meter, and uh, we need to use uh, you know Airbus satellites or or, or whatever, uh, we could eventually do it. The technology uh, could work uh, potentially the same way. I assume the clients in the end um, that they're paying based on some of these metrics, right? Um, like how big the area is uh, that you're surveying, and then also what the resolution is. Does it does it work like that? Uh, usually, we charge per uh, point of interest or per usually catchment area, right? So, usually, energy companies they will have a specific location in which they want to measure the amount of um, snow that it would affect. So, if we're if we're talking about a big valley, uh, usually the river is where all the melted snow will eventually come to, right? So that will be the point of interest, and uh, we're basically charging our in our subscription model per point of interest. That usually is the catchment area that comes to the uh, reservoir or the, to the power plant. Um, so, so basically, yeah, that's 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 how we how we charge. And in um, in using that that third party data, did you find that relatively? Um, easy to do or does it depend on the supplier or um, was, were there any challenges in that? So the challenges, uh, in this case, we we are, um, so the startup is partially funded by the European Space Agency. So we are in there uh, as part of the Copernicus program, we are in the business applications uh, demonstration project phase. 
and um, and basically, well, it, it, it is really easy to get access to uh, Sentinel or European Space Agency satellite data and to NASA uh, data. But uh, on top of that, you know, in with the European Space Agency, you have a, a whole ecosystem of tools that you can use to treat all that data. And, uh, you know, and sometimes it's even pre-processed. Um, so it's really up to you. In our case, obviously, we we want to get us uh, as fast as possible the data because, as, as I said, the faster we can give the um, snow data to our clients, the, the best they are going to forecast the, the, the current info. Um, so basically, it's in our interest to get the lowest uh, pre-processed data and process it in-house, right? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really, really easy when we're talking about open data with, uh, you know, private data, that would be a, a different story. I, I guess, I guess what I'm hearing here is, um, you know, if, if, if we have listeners who, you know, may be thinking about, um, doing a startup, um, as well in, you know, um, the sort of the downstream data sector of space that, if you have some experience analyzing data and if you have maybe a data scientist or several data scientists on your team, what you're saying is then it's it's completely feasible to, to do this. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, what I'm trying to say is that the, the let's say the, the, the key to uh, using, uh, using space data is, is, is not really the, the process of uh, analyzing the the satellite imagery. I mean, we are all the time in in the space sector. We're all the time talking about the same the same problematic, right? The key is not really the satellite imagery; is the combination of satellite imagery with um, external uh, external factors. Uh, so it's a combination of ground truth, how you combine it, uh, ground sensors, and any other input that you can combine it to get the most better outcome of, of your product and how that product integrates in, in, our, in your customer, right? But it's not just about having the best product out there. It's just a, a, having the product that in, in, in the end is going to be easier for the customer to use and will create the best uh, sort of outcome for the uh, business case that you're proposing, for the use case that you're proposing. That's getting basically also at, um, you know, sort of like competitive advantages. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. Are there are there any people who are trying to do similar things to what you are doing? And, and if so, like, you know, um, how, how do their approaches differ? Yeah, so um, there, there are obviously many competitors. Uh, this is this is something that has been studying for, for a long time in academia and there are different approach from different people on how uh, this could be solved. So you have some companies that rely more on hardware. Uh, some com companies, what they do is uh, they put some cameras on the different rivers and then uh, they can better, uh, let's say, predict the, the inflow. If you put up, up there, uh, well, you will be able to predict easier the, the water inflow from the snowmelt. There are some. Uh, there is another company in in Germany that they they use um, a, sp a specific GPS uh, solution to infer the the snow depth and the snow water equivalent, and uh, and, and obviously many of them are chasing um, how to solve the the problem of um, of calculating the density of the snow using primarily um, satellite data, right? So. That's basically uh, the mission that we, we are currently executing, and, uh, and that's partially has been studying, studied in, in academia. And, uh, and yeah, so that's basically our main, um, uh, our main advantage, right? That's the fact that we were able to model uh, snow water equivalent with uh, purely um, space-borne data and without the need of, of, of hardware or field work in the mountains is what eventually uh, is giving us the competitive advantage for, for our customers. So there aren't any competitors, you're saying, who are also taking a space-based approach? Or any, for example, any of the uh, sort of like generalist, um, you know, Earth observation companies, um, some of whom offer, you know, like a, a wide range of observation products and analyses. Are any of those um, also trying to compete on this? 
Um, so no, no, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that um, there are some 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 hydrology companies that are already working with MODIS. Those are the first sort of approach to this. Uh, but MODIS is coming with the problem of of clouds, and MODIS has a really low resolution, 500 meters. Um, so it's it's a first sort of good approach to solve this problem and to adjust hydrology models with uh, with snow data. However, let's say that the holy uh, grail is to um, to be able to obtain the snow water equivalent uh, without the need of any uh, hydrology model, right? And that's something that many people are chasing. Uh, we are able to offer it now um, through through one of through our products, obviously, is not completely space borne yet. So we're using um, some other uh, techniques, and um, we're basically uh, modeling a certain amount of, of the task. But in our vision, would be that in the future will be completely space borne. Okay, and speaking of um, of vision, that's a that's a good seg. Um, if you look out like. You know, whatever is a good medium-term time frame sets like five years in the future. What 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 is the vision of the founders for this company? What do you ideally want this to look like? Um, so for us in five years, uh, basically, what we are, what what our plans are is to be the achieve these uh, completely space-borne uh, snow water equivalent monitoring. And the impact that that will have, uh, because the only way you can get um, uh, to uh, measure snow water equivalent today is, as I said, through fieldboard hardware and uh, modeling. Um, our vision is that we'll have a product that is uh, purely from space, giving that information out, and that has an implication across industry. Right? We're talking about agriculture. We're talking about um, water utilities, insurance, um, you know, flood risk, everything that is related to uh, how um, uh, water method from snow is impacting uh, is impacting any 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 business, and uh, and obviously apart from actually having the most uh, sophisticated snow product out there, which is what we are actually chasing, is to have the foundation of uh, uh, near real-time um, space processing technology, right? So uh, that that will be basically our vision for, for, for the next five years. And so if, if you look a little bit closer in time, let's let's say this year 2020, what, what are your like major milestones? What do you what do you want to achieve this year? So um, for for this year, obviously, what we want is to uh, because we're going to uh, we're opening around uh, soon, uh, more closer to the end of the year. But basically, is to prepare the whole startup for for scale up. That means obviously we have some engagements with um, energy companies, uh, some proof of concept, etc. But um, uh, ideally, uh, all the all the objectives that we have in twenty twenty is to. Uh, ballet proof as much as possible uh, the model with um, as much uh, you know validity as possible, removing all the assumptions that we have currently by engaging in proof of concept with energy companies, so that you know beginning of 2021 we're in a position in which we can completely scale up because we have already um, understood inside out the sales process. Uh, we have understood perfectly how the energy companies are operating and where we are adding value and how we can structure the deal. So that in 2021, once we have raised uh, the money, we can pretty much you know, put it in the right um, sort of slots and start scaling up the, the company. And so th those slots, you'll put the money in, I assume, um, since you don't have any space assets, that's going to be primarily people, correct? Probably salespeople yeah. and data analysts. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. So yeah, we although we are a space tech company uh, because we're using we're, we're downstream, right? We operate as a regular enterprise software company. Um, so when we're talking about growth, uh, you know, primarily 90 percent of that capital is going into um, sales, um, direct sales, um, sales enablement, uh, etc. 
a little bit of marketing and branding, but primarily is uh, driven through direct engagements. Okay. How much are you raising? Uh, we're looking at two million. Okay. So this is like a. Um, do you characterize that as like your your seed round, or is that already yeah, yeah. Mind, like a series? Yeah, like a seed round. Okay. Yeah, for us, it's, it would be a seed round if you want to call it pre-series A. But to be honest, for me, is the uh, finalization of the or the wrapping up of the uh, of the product market fit. Understood. And so far, you've been financed. Um, you, you mentioned ESA, which we should talk about because that's, I think, interesting for a lot of potential European founders and uh, and angels as well. Or how have you gone about financing the company? Yeah. So um, for this is specifically for European founders in the US. It's slightly different. Um, the European Space Agency has a really interesting um, funding program, which is primarily funding companies that are using the space assets that the European Space Agency has put out there. So if you are using Sentinel Constellation, et cetera, you can benefit from this. And it's a really interesting program. And I really, really like it because basically what they are doing is that they are financing uh, from 50 to 75% of the project. And the rest has to come either from your pocket or from uh, private investors. So that means that it's not, a, you know, like a classic um, European uh, grant schedule. Um, so you need to come with some capital uh, from your side. So that helps into making the business model much closer to uh, reality than uh, than a pure grant ecosystem, right? So uh, that worked for us really well. So basically, we combine uh, that uh, capital from the European Space Agency with uh, business angels and some uh, private equity. And uh, and yeah, uh, that was pretty much how we uh, fund the company till now. Interesting. And are there any requirements to access this pool of money? I assume there's probably something like you have to be based in an ESA country. Uh, yeah, so we are in Switzerland, so we have access. Um, it, 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 it's, uh, you need to be part of, I don't know how it's called, but it's the European Space Agency ecosystem. So, for example, the way that it works for us is that uh, the ones that approve the budget, um, is, um, it, it, will, it will come from, the let's say, the Swiss sort of organism that, uh, that takes part in the European Space Agency. So the money sort of will go from Switzerland to the European Space Agency and then back to us. Um, so that's the way it works. And, and understood. And important to remind everybody here that um, ASA countries are not equivalent to um, EU countries. Uh, that's exactly. specific, specifically so common to our uh, British friends at this point in time, of course, who can still access <laughs> ASA funds. <laughs> Uh, because yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, the 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 UK is still part of the European Space Agency ecosystem, right? They're they're really really absolutely uh, into it. So so please please British entrepreneurs do do not feel discouraged. Um, <laughs> and this 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 process of you know successfully accessing the ESA funds, um, roughly how much effort did that take? How much time? I mean, are we talking like a month, a year? You know, how how many man hours roughly? You think? Um, okay, so well, I, I the other day I read um, an article that I found really really interesting as a rule of thumb for any entrepreneur that is um, starting in this sort of career. Um, each month of work will represent hundred thousand uh, dollars or euros in in capital. That's that's pretty much it, or on average. So. Yeah, usually uh, the total amount of work that the European Space Agency, you know, documentation, etc., it was close to six months, more or less. Understood. Cool. And as you mentioned, you guys are based in in Switzerland. Um, how do you yeah. find the the, the the Swiss space ecosystem? Huh. So this is this is a really interesting question. I I found I don't know I don't know yourself, but I found that in the last sort of two years, it, it was really recent, but in in a really short period of time, uh, it, it is growing uh, faster and faster in Switzerland. And many people are putting more and more attention to the space ecosystem. 
Um, so many of colleagues that I have were colleagues or acquaintances that I had in the startup ecosystem in, in Switzerland. Suddenly, they are you know part of a specific uh, I don't know board that takes care of uh, uh, space sort of budgets or or you know new um, new VCs into space. Uh, you know new companies that are they are taking some of these uh, that they're starting to to take advantage of the space ecosystem. Uh, new new companies are raising lots of funds, like uh, you know, Pictera recently that the guys raised uh, over four million and uh, yep. Astrocast. So I, I feel that it's brewing really nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean you ask how how I see it. I, I think it's certainly it's it's very dynamic, it's growing. I think obviously the access to to talent is seems great just because of the you know the high quality of the swiss engineering schools um you know i i think over time hopefully there will be also like more recognition on the on the political side and more support uh from that um because switzerland's historically very focused on you know yeah that's that's like finance and pharma um but hopefully i think down the road down the road it would make a lot of sense for switzerland to to support space um it it does it does and uh, and I think now is the the right time. I mean, you have some countries that are already taking the the lead, and I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to get ahead of the of the competition because it's everybody sees this space ecosystem is is uh, just uh, blowing at the moment. Not not only upstream because upstream started to blow a little bit earlier, but now the upstream is becoming really really important. Yeah, and then. Um if I'm not mistaken, you're Spanish. Yes, I am. Have you? Has it crossed your mind to to um, locate the company in Spain as well, or was it always Switzerland? I guess because of your your co-founders. Um, so look, both both co-founders were Spanish. We okay. we met in in university in Spain, but um, I my I have spent my whole professional career in Switzerland. And uh, for me, starting the company in Spain was not easier. It was much com- much more complex than starting in Switzerland because I already knew not the whole ecosystem, but I knew some people that already were part of the startup ecosystem. I knew some uh, potential investors. So it was relatively easier to launch the, the, the startup in Switzerland than going to Spain. And the ecosystem was much more uh, well, uh, let's say, tailored, I'll say. However, um, there is one big problem for Swiss startups and it's is happening. I mean, all my uh, founders, uh, colleagues have the same problem, which is it's extremely expensive. It's so expensive that, uh, you know, you achieve the raise, uh, I don't know, 200, 300K and uh, you cannot really run anything with that in Switzerland. Uh, so you need to either... Yeah externalize it or or uh, you know what we did is eventually we uh we had some people in spain but that's why i'm malaga in malaga yeah that was the, what that was the gist of my question um i suppose you know if you're uh, if you're looking at things like hiring people um obviously if you, if you hire some you know very qualified uh, technical person maybe it is arguably just better to pay up and get the person in switzerland um, but probably for certain other positions you would probably pay a fraction in Spain than you would pay in Switzerland, I'm, I'm imagining. Exactly, exactly. So if, if you are looking at, um, you know, when we're talking about PhD, about, you know, literally developing cutting-edge solutions, in Switzerland is probably one of the best places to be and really close to ETH and uh, to EPFL is where you, where you want to be, no doubt yeah. about that. But the problem is that, you know, in a, in a startup, in any kind of company, there are a certain amount of tasks that are more, let's say, rudimental uh, that can be developed by less sophisticated, um, let's say, uh, team members. And, you know, hiring a developer in, in Switzerland is completely, uh, it's really, really expensive. And you're paying like three, four times less when you're moving to other countries like, uh, you know, Spain is one of them, but it could be, I don't know, uh, Ukraine, Serbia, etc. Like you said, your professional life has been um, in Switzerland. If I remember correctly, you at some point in time you were even at um, at CERN. How how did you end up in this? How did you end up uh, becoming a space entrepreneur? <laughs> 
Well, I, uh, it's as I as I explained to you in the in the beginning. I think I think it was uh, because we started from the problem. We found a problem that was worth solving it, and eventually, when we were analyzing how to solve the problem, we said, "Well, uh, we need to use space assets, right?" And the fact that we were um, that we are coming from CERN because both co-founders are coming from CERN. We have lots of connections in the European Space Agency because. To be honest, I mean, they're really, really connected, although they do different things, obviously. But, uh, you know, I knew lots of people from the knowledge transfer department that were, uh, you know, in both organizations and they're really close to each other. And they, and importantly, they work similarly. Um, so we felt that it was for us really, uh, really comfortable to be in that space that was really similar to things that we were doing in, uh, at CERN. And then the fact that we are not in upstream, but in downstream, where, uh, you know, the technological skill sets are slightly different. So uh, in downstream is where, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, really high skill sets in software development, um, uh, architecture, DevOps are, are the true essence of a product. So you, you you didn't have to learn about um, you know launch and um, orbital orbital <laughs> dynam- astrodynamics and things like that. But um, <laughs> but once you decided, once you realized that the 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 best solution to your problem was space, um, I assume you had to learn something about space. Um, what was sort of the biggest um, not obstacle, but the sort of the biggest uh, you know uh, learning challenge you had with regard to learning what you have to learn about space well yeah it's it's yeah it, it is like a, a really particular ecosystem so there are a bunch of things that you need to learn uh in the beginning obviously you need to learn who are the big players how is the industry uh going what is the direction that the industry is taking because that's quite an important thing right so um and then you can you can participate in the ecosystem and you can share your views on how do you think how do you see the uh, the sort of ecosystem moving from 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 your seat, right? But the fact that we're talking about how the space data is booming and how uh, you know you have some generic platforms that are sort of giving you uh, the, the the way to operate um, downstream data across industry or the ones that are really uh, playing niche in uh, you know like uh, like. Um, uh, for cargo or for oil, etc. Um, so that's all this, all that stuff, and how uh, you know upstream and downstream is dividing, and how the value chain works is really um, necessary for you to be able to understand where you where you need to position your company, and uh, and obviously they, this helps a lot when you're talking to to investors, right? And why they take some decisions, and why they invest in some type of companies, and they do not invest in some other type of companies. This, this is very interesting. Um, if now that you know the space ecosystem a little bit more broadly, because you're part of it, um, if you weren't doing Vigor, what what would what would you do? What would you find interesting? <laughs> well. Um, you know, I think the, the fact that, uh, first of all, doing enterprise software uh, would be something that I will always be interested in. I think that it really fits uh, where I'm, I'm coming from and the skill sets that uh, not only myself, but my co-founder and the team have really, really fit nicely. Um, I will definitely be there. In a nutshell, when we're talking about downstream, Obviously, there are certain amount of techniques that we're using that are a little bit outside um, just software developing and we're getting more into your special uh, technologies, etc. But they have they're they're relatively uh, close enough. So so yeah, that's that's probably the place I would be. Understood. By the way, um, it just occurred to me one question I should have asked, which I didn't ask. Since you're detecting snow, which I suppose is somewhere related to detecting eyes, but correct me if that's incorrect. Is your technology something that could also be used, for example, to detect patches of, of water eyes on the moon? Um, okay, so that's, that's 
two things. The, the first one is for the moment we're focusing in snow. Ice detection is is another sort of, uh, of thing. Obviously, in our vision, uh, the, the the main vision of defrost would be, which is our main product, is for defrost. Um, would be basically to understand how all uh, the cryosphere will will melt and um, be able to to have or monitor that that melting, right? But that will come in a in a longer term. And therefore, the second question where you are um, that we're, you're approaching for um, um, ice detection or uh, melting the what melting water or water equivalent detection in in, in other planets, if uh, you know the the sensors that we're using are are enclosed in the hardware that is being launched, yeah, that will be completely doable. Understood. Jan, we always close on the same question in this podcast um, because it is a space podcast, which is basically, do you like science fiction? And that is usually a resounding yes on this podcast. And, <laughs> and, uh, if you say and, no, uh, we, if, we erase the interview. We basically, basically will not publish the podcast. <laughs> uh, and, and, and if so, what is, what is your favorite uh, or favorite science fiction books uh, and or movies, uh, TV series? Um, so by... Completely number one will be Dune. Uh, that's my my main reference, and actually, it's my favorite book so far. Um, and the the whole the whole uh, world that uh, was created around Dune and the, the world of Arrakis and the, and the sandworms and, and and the fact that is sort of the the first the first ever idea around science fiction and how everything has been created out of that specific idea. I found it uh, really fascinating. And are you talking about the book and or the movie? And I assume you probably have read the book and seen the movie. Did you, did you find the movie was, um, was a good reflection of the book? Uh, so yeah, I'm talking about the book, obviously. Um, so yeah, actually the movie, I, I think it wasn't a movie. It was a TV show. It was, um, it was a movie. I think it was, it's a while ago. I'm, I'm, I'd like to say like yeah, early eighties. I, I mean, it has, the only reason I remember the movie is one of the sort of like actors in it is Sting and he's, he, he's really young and, and really skinny. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I didn't know that. Um, so I think I heard at some point around the movie, uh, of, uh, around June, but yeah, I, I I think I watched part of it, but I it didn't it really didn't take a lot to me. So I stay with the book. <laughs> Although there is, uh, from memory, there's no snow whatsoever on on that planet. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's uh, yeah, it's only it's the sand. <laughs> on that note, Jan, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Good to have you, and best of luck with the fundraising. Uh, thank you for having me. That's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or are interested in being a sponsor, or really anything else, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. That's it. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.